Okay, so we are on Acts 4, 32. We're making a big jump on this one, um, a bit more of a bigger jump because we're... I was going to do Acts uh, 4, 32 just to the end, which is only a few verses. And then obviously when you read it, you find that it actually leads on into 5 because we talk about um, Ananias and Sapphira. So quite a big chunk and quite a lot to get through. So I thought I, we would just do this all together and I think that's uh, quite helpful. Um, and so today we're looking at, I've called this God's glory is not for sale. If you know the story, to, uh, even a little bit, uh, you'll know by reputation at least um, that uh, they tried to almost buy their way into the group of believers by reputation, uh, by something of earthly, worldly, materialistic uh, treasure. Um, and we have a comparison in Barnabas that we'll see, um, and not very much about him, but we'll learn a little bit about him too. Uh, and what we're really going to look at today is this contrast. So we've been talking about spirit and truth uh, last week, and this kind of leads on to that. And we're going to look at the spirit and truth behind the actions of uh, Ananias and uh, Sapphira, contrasted with the actions of Barnabas. Um, I mean, I hope we can convey uh, in this message away, but I can certainly convey probably about, there's three principles here that we're looking at. <coughs> Excuse me. Firstly, there are, are uh, com that our completeness is in Christ and not in the material or the worldly, that God is not impressed or fooled by how we might attempt to impress or fool him. Uh, he's not, he's not um, hoodwinked uh, as a means to buy our way into the kingdom, and we'll, we'll see that as well. Uh, and thirdly, that ultimately God not only knows uh, and sees our actions, but also knows the true heart and intent behind them. Now, that all sounds quite intense, but if you've read it, it is a quite intense scene that we'll see, an account of an intense moment. M much debate around what God does here to uh, Ananias and Sapphira, and it's debated and in various different ways. Many non-believers have believed this is harsh and almost fulfills their unbelief and validates their unbelief in God. Um, but <clears throat> we'll find that um, why God does this or allows this to happen and why he does it this way. Uh, there was, uh, I was reminded uh, this morning um, that there's this term that's, that's more going around in the New Age, but we, we hear a thing called being slain in the spirit, um, which supposedly is, is a Christian thing, and it's not. Um, but this idea that we can sort of ride around the floor and, and you know, just sort of lose control of ourselves. Um, but I was reminded this morning that uh, David Pawson, in one of his uh, sermons, uh, he said, he was asked, um, have you ever been slain in the spirit? Uh, and he says, the only time, and I'm paraphrasing, the only time someone has been slain in the spirit is Ananias and Sapphira. And that was the only time someone has been slain in the spirit. And that's not a good, good way, by the way. Um, so I thought that was quite funny. Um, and uh, uh, just David Pawson is very clever at kind of delivering these cutting lines to people. And just uh, if you, you, you can find him on YouTube, he's, you won't agree with everything he says, but, you know, that's the way we are as Christians. We just sort of find our way. But um, it's, it is an intense account of what happens. Um, as a co but it is a consequence of trying to buy their way into the good graces of God. So let's read this, uh, Acts 4, verses uh, 
32.5, verse 11, <clears throat> and it says, All the believers were one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection uh, of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from, Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, what a great name, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the feet, uh, the apostles' feet. In verse 1, Acts 5, it says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's foreknowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has, has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold and after it was sold? Wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, <coughs> excuse me, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Hmm. I'm not reading that. Okay. So, where are we? Let's set the scene. I explained last week that um, the believers uh, are not only together physically, but their intention and focus was of one mind and of one heart. They believed and lived in being completely satisfied in Jesus. Not their own versions of Jesus, not factions of believers, but believers who were of one mind, one heart in Christ Jesus. Now, as we look at this, it's really important to know that what must come first before anything else, because this is what is first in our verses, is that God is number one. Uh, before anything we do, and I did mention this last week, God has to be number one before we proceed with anything in our lives, before we decide what to do, uh, even small decisions that we make, God must be at the center of those decisions. And so that is to say that before any works or things that we do to love and even serve people in the right way, it must first be rooted in this singular focus towards God. Matthew 20, 22, verse 37 to 38 says that Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Out of that rootedness of our wholeness towards God comes an understanding of the great love shown to us of God's love for us, to send his son to die on a cross for our sins. So the cross exposes our sinfulness, and therefore the sinfulness of mankind. 
And it gives us a way out. It doesn't just leave us there. It gives us a way out of that through forgiveness and acceptance when we admit that the sinful nature and believe and trust in Jesus. This sounds like Christianity 101, but we have to remember these things at the very core of who we are as believers. So we must always go back to the cross and say, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do that I can't ever repay? And that sense that there's nothing we can do kind of feeds into how we behave, the actions that we take and the things that we do. You can see we're kind of moving, looking at how there may be Ananias and uh, Sapphira uh, behave. But, but because we've been exposed to that truth of ourselves, we're not using it equally to trample on others with. Rather to have compassion on those that are yet to know Jesus. And so know the truth of our sinfulness, but also the gift of salvation. And so this is a close second to the first, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine to 40. Uh, says and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments everything everything hangs on these two commandments and in the first verse of our reading this is what we find being practiced as a result of these things being practiced in the right order we no longer find the believers clinging to things but it said bonded to Christ. This, this bonding to Jesus became, meant it became easier to share things. It became easier to not be so tied to material things, objects, even idol worship of those things. Because their understanding of possession was that it wasn't theirs to begin with, nor to end with. When we, when we leave this place, our possessions will stay here. When you look at it in that context, I can't, I mean, you could take it with you in theory. I've heard many people being buried with their possessions, which I, I, I don't even understand. But apparently that happens. Some people who really absolutely treasure certain things want to be buried with certain objects, certain possessions. But the believers here, that, that, that's just not a thing anymore. It's just not something that will solve the, the, the rooted problem of sinfulness, of, of evil in the world. There's an acceptance that God allowed them to even have it in the first place. That's by grace. The things that we have is only by the grace of God. What we find is not just everyone throwing in all their houses and land in one go living in a commune. Some people will maybe misinterpret this as some form of communism. It isn't. Uh, that uh, everyone just seems to, at the same time, sell all their possessions and go and live together in one place. This isn't what happens. What is actually happening is, is uh, people sell their land and possessions and their houses as the needs arose. You see, we, we don't lose our mind because we, we love Jesus. God can tell us how to practically use things for his benefit, for his kingdom. So what they were doing is that when the needs arose, then they would sell as was God directed and, and the need was there. So this is not a bunch of people who have lost all sense. Rather, in gaining understanding that all things we possess are God-given, it is both not ours to cling to and also for us to discern through God when there is a need to relinquish our possessions, 
to serve the needs of others that arise. It's important to know that ultimately, what was laid at the apostles' feet was money. It was the proceeds of sales. So maybe I think I need to be clear in case you're thinking, I do a generous act of sharing my possessions with someone. That's, that's all okay. You can also, also give, give possessions to people should it serve their need. But just be careful. Inspect your heart that you're not doing it to offload some junk. That's all I'm saying. Just inspect your, your motives and say, Am I, a, a brother and sister, I'm serving you. Here is a hand wringer. Here is a washboard that I'm sure you'll find use for in this 21st century. Um, no, no, no. Be careful. Inspect your heart for the reasons that you are giving possessions away. Is it that it will serve their need or is it that I just don't want it in my loft or driveway or garage or wherever? Okay, that's the warning I must give because uh, we, as Christians, we, we tend to not say no because we're worried about offence. Uh, but we both need to do our part. Uh, as the giver, I need to be sure that what I'm giving, it will actually serve people. As the receiver, I need to help my brother or sister understand that that need is not being met. Thank you anyway. Don't take offence. The giver does not take offence from uh, not accepting that gift. That said, good. So we've established that the principle that we need to approach this Christian way of living first uh, as a wholehearted believers in Jesus. And second, that from that understanding of love we've received in a salvation through Jesus, we want others to know that same salvation. And so love them in the hope that they will also know Jesus. Our understanding then of the material wealth in the world becomes the least of our focus. Uh, that The power of the cross becomes our whole world and way. To understand this core principle uh, and what helps us to understand it is the differences between these motives and the intentions of Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas. So who is Barnabas? Uh, the only verses we know in uh, the first, well, the time he's mentioned is, is in Acts 4, 36 to 37. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> There's actually a lot more about Barnabas. And very quickly, we later read that Barnabas is an advocate for the new convert, Paul. He is the shepherd of the new Gentile converts in Antioch. Uh, he was trusted with taking aid to the poor, partnered with Paul on missionary journeys, and an advocate for giving John Mark a second chance. So this guy is like a proper advocate for those people that maybe others might write off, which is great. And thankfully, he was an advocate for Paul, because Paul, once he became a Christian, did amazing uh, work to spread the, share the message of Jesus. So we learn already that the name uh, of son of encouragement is well attributed to this man. Barnabas is an outstanding example of the faith. By truly embracing the principle of loving and trusting God first, loving people and not being controlled or driven by materialism or fame. So who are Ananias and Sapphira? We find that in verse 5. Uh, one to two, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
Just from this introduction, we know that his intentions in selling the property was to share in, in some way, the fruit of God's blessing. When, when Barnabas gives uh, the feet of the apostles, he's not doing it for himself. He's not doing it even for his own glory, he's doing it for God's glory. But we already get a sense that there is a scheme going on, and this is for fame of himself, so people will go, what a great couple these are that give, give away all this stuff, but yet hiding uh, the full amount of money that he got for selling the land. So not only does he want to be popular maybe with people, he wants to share in the reflected glory. They both do. And in the adoration that only God deserves. He wants a recognition from believers through a display of generosity that he knew was not sacrificial as it appears to be. And we know just from this verse that Ananias does not lead his family well in making his wife an accomplice to his actions, but also the fact that she goes along with it. And it maybe tells us that this is not unexpected behaviour from them in terms of their track record. It seems there was no hesitation to come up with this scheme. It seems there was no holding back. They just decided, they saw the money, this is what we'll do. It shouldn't be a surprise either. We see this in Genesis, right, where there's no leading, you know, uh, Eve is left and Adam is somewhere else. So we see a similar picture happening just as in Genesis. What it tells us is the nature of, of, our, of our sinfulness, of our, of our greed, the side of our greed that really wants something to uh, glorify ourselves, make us look like the, the good person, the, 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 the person that we should be respected and Aren't you great for doing that? So we now have enough to get a picture, at least, of these people in, in these verses. So let's look more deeply into their actions and intent, as well as contrast and compare. Some people say that Ananias and Sapphira gave their money in part because they wanted some of the prestige or reputation that Barnabas had amongst the believers. Some say the driving force in part was because they saw Barnabas do what he did and so they wanted it but at the same time they wanted a little bit for themselves it's possibly true but I suppose that the motive at this point is not majorly important because we know that the core motive is to share in the money that they did not uh, give to the believers to share with others which is greed and selfishness I think what might have happened here is that they did see Barnabas and his selfless act in giving over all the proceeds from the sale for those in need. And even to give Ananias and Sapphira the benefit of the doubt, it might even be possible that they had every intention of doing the same. But the sale of their land and the subsequent money they earned from it explored a flaw in their character and their walk with God. The original translation doesn't hold back it says they embezzled the money. Not that they held something back or they took a bit for themselves. They embezzled the money. That, that, that's, that's illegal in most countries, to embezzle money. But the original translation actually uses the word to embezzle money. They kept some for themselves with the intention to deceive others to the contrary. 
So you start to understand, well, what we know is what God does to them. And, and what God punishes them with. But the language is in line with that punishment. The language is it wasn't just a little bit of money. And then we'll see actually that it's more than just money that's going wrong here in the character of Ananias and Sapphira. But what we then see is uh, first Ananias being exposed by Peter. Uh, and this, I believe, was only possible through the Holy Spirit telling Peter of what he had done. This is called, possibly called the word of knowledge in this moment. He received a word of knowledge about what he had done. And Peter can only know that he lied to the Holy Spirit, that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit told him so. And I believe that is the way uh, that is phrased in our reading. In verse 3 to 4, it says, Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? He has to know that the Holy Spirit has been lied to. He's not guessed. He's not made it up. And the only way he can know that is if the Holy Spirit told him. I know, very simple, but the mechanics is really important because that means the Holy Spirit is speaking to Peter and saying, Ananias has lied. He's still holding money back. So he says, how is it has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you've received from the land? Verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Uh, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. What is interesting to note is that Peter doesn't speak of the act in just the, the context of selfishness or pride. He doesn't bring up specific uh, emotive actions. He goes straight to the point with the no-holds-barred accusation. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? How does Peter know that it's Satan that he's, uh, has been allowed or he's allowed to fill his heart? Matthew 6, verse 24. There's a verse for that. Not an apt verse. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew helps to make it clear that it's not just an act of selfishness on his part in this particular moment and in everything else he loves God in, but that by doing what he did, he showed that he picked one over the other. You cannot have both, says the gospel. So now again, you start to understand the ferocity of the punishment because God says there is no room for these two together. As a Christian, there's no room. It's either one or the other. You either devote yourself to that or you devote yourself to me. And either way, there are consequences. Good and bad. Satan can influence the life of a believer, even if a spirit, even a spirit-filled believer, but he can't do your sinning for you. He can't do our sinning for us. That's why it's called temptation. Ananias still had to conceive it in his heart. I mean, I say all, but all the, the devil really did was encourage him. He encouraged him in his deceitfulness. So I think from this, I think I, I, when I was reading this, I thought, 
we just need to be clear that Christianity is not, it's not a value system. It's not like, doesn't it have good moral values? It is a purposeful way of life. God makes that clear. You choose God. You have to choose him. When we pick Christ, we pick him over everything else. Uh, Stott, a theologian, a minister, uh, he says this. He says, because his sin was lusting after public praise for his generosity, it was appropriate that the sin be exposed publicly. It is a good general rule that secret sins should be dealt with secretly, private sins privately, and only public sins publicly. What he's following there is, is the way that we do it in the Bible, which is that we first take it to, the, to our brother or sister, and we have that privately, and then we take it to the, a wider group in the church, uh, and that might be elders, and then, and then across the church if it then has to escalate. So he's just taken a principle strictly uh, from the Bible. But what's just as cutting in Peter's correct accusation is that he says to Ananias, the land and its value belong to you. It was yours. You were completely free to do with it what you wanted to do with it. That's got to be hard to hear, hasn't it? You must be, if you're Ananias in that moment, you must be thinking, why did I go through this? I didn't have to do this. I didn't have to sell my land. I didn't even have to give them money. God doesn't make us do that. It is out of a heart of giving that we want to do that. So Peter says, you didn't have to do that. God didn't make you do that. The punishment that follows is, it's not because he withheld the money, it's because he implied by deception that he gave all of it to them. You see, they were not doing it because it was to the glory of God, but in fact they secretly wanted some of that glory and adoration for themselves. I think we need to know that, that God, because the Bible says so, God will not be mocked. He will not stand by whilst others attempt to take his glory for themselves and so you see this isn't this isn't about selling everything you have and give money to the church this isn't a verse you use to try and drum up more donations this is about our intention in what we do behind what we do peter made it clear that no one demanded or made ananias do it he was free to do what he wanted with it and God, in his grace, allowed him to do that. He allowed him to not give anything, to not sell anything. I'm sure God was quite happy for him to still be a believer in that group of believers. But the motive was wrong. He decided he wanted to cheat God out of something. And it just goes to show how unnecessary this sin was. Ananias was free to use the money for whatever he wanted. Even if he sold the land, he was free to keep the money. Can't stress this enough. He was free to keep the proceeds of the sale. That's what Peter's saying to him. You don't have to give any of it to, to, to God. But the moment you do and then pretend like you're doing some grand great thing, you better be doing it for the right reasons. But what Ananias was doing, uh, he was using it to 
inflate his spiritual image and pride. It was when he attempted by the grace of God for the glory and a credit to himself that the line was crossed. Matthew 6, verse 3 to 4 says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We, we know that this is done in secret, and the reason why, when they take it to the apostles, the reason why that is is because when the others knew about it, they heard about it. They were told about it. They didn't see it happen. They didn't see him die. The apostles saw him die. The others heard about it. Perfectly fits what's going on here. Barnabas giving to the apostles, not as a grand show to others, but says, I want this to glorify God. Do, do something with it that glorifies him. But not to show off, not to say how great a donator I am, a giver of the church I am. Barnabas being barely mentioned in the act of his giving, I think, speaks much into the act of giving sacrificially. In a weird way, the fact that Barnabas is not spoken about a lot is because he did it secretly. It was barely mentioned because it wasn't about him. Peter confronting Ananias with his sin did not mean Peter caused him to die, as many would, would uh, have, what well, many think that somehow Peter passed judgment on Ananias. Morgan, another theologian, I think he's a minister of some time, uh, but he says Peter was probably more surprised than anyone else when Ananias fell down dead. Observed that Peter said no word to Ananias about his death. The sentence was not calling down upon a man of a curse at the caprice of a... a Ecclesiastical, one of those you practice and then get wrong. Ecclesiastical official, the death of Ananias was the act of God. Some say, as we mentioned, I mentioned at the start, it was harsh and excessive what God did. But have you not ever wondered why it doesn't happen more today? This act of... of secret, holding back and, and pretending to be a, a godly person or a, a great uh, wanting to find fame uh, because you, you're so generous. This, this act of what we see here is, is done today. We're, we're prone to it today. We can, we can see it in churches today. That happens. We can even fall, in, we can fall into this ourselves, even in a small way. Because the, when we think about an, an amount of money, the more it, the more it is, there is something of us that still a little bit still thinks, even as Christians, it's a lot of money. Because we're not perfect, remember? I'm yet to meet a person that can say, no, I gave that money without, without a single thought. I'm telling you, you cannot do that. We're, we live in a world that tells us money is important, that it should almost, almost be worshipped. This has the hallmarks of what you might find in prosperity teaching. About trying to get something because we trade in something, we should get something back. More I put in, the more I get back. That's the prosperity teaching. Terribly inaccurate and just not true. That's not how it works. 
And so people who kind of do that, why, why are they still alive? Why are people that, that do that, that base everything on money, that, that they think God is, is, a, is, you trade with God, why, why, why aren't those people being struck down? I'm not advocating for that, by the way. I think God's grace is amazing. But it proves, I think it proves a point that I think what happens now is God delays his righteous judgment in nearly every sin committed against him, not justice. In every sin that we can think of and the sins that we, are, we struggle with from day to day, delays. Jesus has brought in that delay. Thank you, Jesus. Pearson, another quote here, says this, we must not infer from the rarity of such judgments in this word or from their, so, on their own, that God's mind has changed uh, as to the exceeding sinfulness and hatefulness and ill desert of the sin he has thus rebuked. This, I want to say solidarity, and it's, it's, not, it's not happening. Um, <laughs> solitary, thank you. One word wants to come out, and it's not even the right word. Solitary, thank you. The solitary example must stand as a lasting and terrible monument of what God thinks of that sin. It is not that we forget what happened. It is not, it is, it is not even that we say, well, that's what God does today. I'm sure that he might do that today. I don't know. I've not seen it. But that's God. God is, is, is completely free to do what is right in his judgment. But it should stand as a lesson for us. It should stand as a lesson of what we need to be aware of of ourselves, what we are capable of doing. It still remains critically important that we ourselves avoid falling into deceptive sin so as to foolishly believe that we can fool God into thinking that we are believers because of what we do outwardly and our credited righteousness on the basis of the adoration we get from others. We're not right in God's eyes because others think we're good people. We're not right. Not one is righteous. But Jesus makes us righteous. The same judgment then is placed upon uh, Sapphira. Yet I believe uh, something of God's amazing grace is still shown. Have you noticed a slight difference in approach to what Peter does? It says here in verse 8, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Not a rhetorical question. He said, is this the price you got for the land? Wouldn't that struck you as strange? that Peter's asking you this question. Considering that all these people, it's not just Barnabas, there are people giving, uh, laying money at the feet of the apostles. And in particular, he asks, uh, is this the price you got for the land? The true price? Wouldn't you think that was a bit weird and go, why is he asking me that? It's a bit strange. But the question is grace, isn't it? He asked the question because there's an extension of grace. Here's your chance. So two things we learn from this particular question. Place yourself in this position. Barnabas was not, uh, was not asked this question. And so I wonder if we might have thought, hold on, why is he asking that specifically? But she doesn't. She doesn't think anything of it. She continues to lie, just, just as Ananias did, just as he, he led her to as well. 
as if it is entirely possible for God to not know what goes on privately in our hearts or in our private plans. First lesson here. If Peter asks you a question, just tell the truth. This guy knows, has a, has a connection with the Holy Spirit. Peter asks you a question, don't lie. You don't want this to happen to you. That's a joke, okay, because you'll never speak to Peter. But you understand what I'm saying. Um, Peter here is, is somewhat of, of connected right in with the Holy Spirit right now. And it is true, she didn't know what happened to her husband. But I love in it there is a sense of grace that even the, 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 what's been committed against God, God still prompts Peter to ask the question, even though he knows the truth. He knows what's happened. But the real lesson, secondly, is that God in his grace has provided for us the practice of a perfect faith by imperfect people. It's absolutely clear that we cannot be sinless. But it's also clear that while Satan does tempt our weak flesh, he does not make our decisions for us in acting on those temptations. What's incredibly sad about this account is that Ananias didn't need to do any of it. Thank you. He didn't even need to sell his property. He didn't even need to give the money if he did sell the property. God didn't make him do it. What made Barnabas do it, however, in contrast, was, that, was not that he could repay God or impress God or impress believers around him. It was that he understood that Jesus took a greater punishment, a greater pain, a greater death for his own life than any of his material possessions could compare or do for him in eternity. Possessions and fame did not make Barnabas complete. Jesus did. So his display of gratitude to the ministry of Jesus was to give out of utter gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross. It wasn't that Barnabas uh, would have churches named after him, although we do have churches named after Barnabas, but that wasn't his goal. It was because he knew just how important it was that the ministry of Jesus spread far and wide across the world so that others would know salvation through Christ Jesus. To bring us to an end, Colossians 2, verse 9 to 12 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Everyone who hears the gospel and believes in Jesus is placed in him immediately. There is no need to be chasing after things to make us feel better, though the world will tell you different. Anyone who trusts God to take care of all our sin is immediately placed in Christ. No ifs, no buts. Dead to self and alive in Christ. Identify with Christ, death, burial and resurrection. We need to keep remembering that because that won't, that won't be every day that we'll see that or, or remember it, but we need to try and remember it. Because we, we did nothing to be raised. 
We did nothing. Jesus did everything. And that should fill us with that kind of completeness. That I can go, I can tell you about something that you think you have everything in the world. You have your house, your car, your TVs, your whatever you want. But there is actually something missing. And I believe that to be the case here in this community. There are people that don't know that that's missing. And that's sad. That's not to condemn them. It's because it's sad. Because we should feel sad about that. And now not only because uh, they have something missing now, but what happens when they go? What happens into eternity? That should put fear into us, just like we saw here in Acts. People need to hear about Jesus and fast. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you have extended your grace to us that we can have the chance, the opportunity to come to you. Lord, that our heart should be uh, not filled with hatred, but with, at least before people believe in you, a sense of loss, that that loss drives us to want them to know you, uh, that we want them to hear about Jesus, that people's lives can be completed in Jesus Christ. That, Lord, is a message that must be heard. And so, Lord, I ask that you, you show us as Christians, how do, we, how do we do that, Lord? How do we uh, do that? And, Lord, I think of the Holy Spirit praying. What is it that is on our hearts right now that we need to think is not honoring you, is not serving you, is not, is not really extending the gospel in that sense? And, Lord, you're, it's so amazing that you don't condemn us in it but that you hear our cry, you hear our struggle. And you want us to know that Jesus is the only way that that sin can be defeated. And so, Lord, we, we want to lift to you our, our hearts and our own intentions behind how we serve in church, in the community, in our day-to-day -day work life, wherever that may be, Lord, We want to be real, but not, not cheesy. We want to be real. We want the gospel to deliver the compassion that it has. And so, Lord, I, will you teach us how to, how to be refined in our gospel sharing, in, our, in the sharing of the truth of Jesus Christ? That no matter what anyone has done, they can still come to you right now. That no one is beyond saving. No one is beyond loss. Lord, help us with our intentions. What is our focus, Lord, in doing what we do? Lord, help us with the Holy Spirit as we go about our day-to-day, -day, sharpen us more and more in that understanding of our intentions. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you you died and rose again so we can stand here today and say, I'm a believer in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We are going to worship your holy name. We thank you, Lord. Amen.